Well, I barely made it here uh, last night. Uh, I, I was with some of our family, and I want to say hi to the Sissons and the Bryants and the Perkins, and uh, I was up there speaking at one of the clubs there, uh, one of the country clubs, and uh, we have a new Lynx Fellowship up there, and uh, we had some other things, did a golf clinic and all that, which is your pastor does some weird things. So uh, it was good, but everything was on fire just like everything else. I told you it was following me around. Well, it followed me to Montana because there was smoke, and then a fire broke out up there. So hell is following me around the country. So, so uh, anyway, I, but I, I only had a 30-minute layover in L.A., and I thought, oh, this is going to be tight. But Bozeman, there's nothing that's going to delay out of Bozeman. And they came on, and we're delayed and delayed in 20 minutes and 25 minutes. And I said, there's no way. So I was thinking, I'm going to have to rent a car, and I'm going to have to get all this figured out and call Pastor Paul because, you know, come on, Pastor Paul, you're going to be preaching this week. And uh, he will be preaching next week, which is going to be good. I can't wait to uh, see what he has, the Lord has on Paul's heart. But um, so anyway, I fly in, and I'm just thinking, i got to be the first off that jet runway, and i got to get down the deal and run. And, and I flew into 85, Terminal 7. And the guy said, look, if we land next on the, on, the, on the runway next to Denny's, we got a big problem because you're never going to make it. But if we land on this runway, you're gonna, you have a chance. You maybe have a chance. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to be in a different terminal. I'm going to have to, you know. And I, I, we landed in gate 85, and I got off, and I'm just checking for, oh, where is the gate? And Palm Springs was 84, gate 84. <laughs> in L.A., that never happens ever in the history of my life. And the plane was delayed about 10 minutes, and it just, I just walked right on. I had time. I had all the time in the world. So anyway, I got a little bit of sleep and all that. So, uh, <clears throat> so uh, you know what that means for you? That means that God wants you to hear about his wrath. <laughs> that's what that means, because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to finish up this uh, kind of sub-series of the David series, uh, The Wrath of God. Now, I've gotten a lot of feedback. And I, I didn't think I'd ever get feedback. You know, we're loving the series on the wrath of God. And I can't even imagine that. So, you know, that just sounds so strange. We love the series on the wrath of God. So let's do just a quick review for those of you who haven't been here. But before we do, let me just open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We're so grateful for your word. Lord, we want to know the totality of your word. I think of Psalm 119, verse 160, I believe it is, which says, The sum of thy word is truth. So to get truth, we need the whole enchilada. Lord, we, and we're asking you to uh, cement in our minds both your grace and your perfection, and, but also your justice and then necessarily your wrath. Lord, if we can understand who you are, Lord, we'll, we'll be able to worship more. We'll fall in love with Jesus more because we'll recognize what Jesus actually went through to secure our relationship with you. And it's not just a theological proposition, Lord. It was your son. And Lord, so impress this on our hearts today. Lord, speak through your strange little servant here. Lord, I just I bow before you as your servant, Lord. I, I, and just speak to your people, Lord. And speak to me in the process. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if we look back, first of all, just a couple things. We've, we've come to the conclusion that God... Now think about this for a second. God is a lot more than we maybe ever realized. We do not realize who we're dealing with. And the wrath of God and understanding biblically the foundations for God's violent emotional response to things not being right is his wrath and also his power. We also are starting to get into understanding his holiness. It's his very essence. It's who he is. 
He can't be duplicitous. He's holy. He can't come into the presence of sin. He cannot. It's not because he's saying, I don't want to be with those people. It's just that he, he physically can't. Why? He wouldn't implode. He wouldn't spontaneously combust. We would in our state being unclothed like we look and talk about Jesus and the parable that he gave in Matthew 22 last week, which was you need to have your wedding clothes on. Think of your wedding clothes as being fireproof clothes, so to speak, or a big umbrella by which the wrath is poured out on the world, but we are protected from his wrath when we have those wedding clothes on. How do you get those wedding clothes on? We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning as well. He has to be, must satisfy himself. Just as his wrath is a satisfaction of himself because it's who he is necessarily. That's what we talked about last week as well. If you, if you weren't here and you want to go back or on live stream, go back and listen to that last week. Because I know that out of context may not make a total amount of sense to you. But I think with the full way we unpacked it last week, maybe give you some insight into that. And then finally, God, uh, this is important, uh, God is not violently opposed to sin, if he's not, then he's necessarily a malevolent God. If God doesn't care about all the garbage that goes on against you, if he doesn't care about the abuse that maybe you suffered as a child, if he doesn't care about the you getting ripped off in that business deal and turning your whole family upside down and maybe causing you a divorce, if he didn't care about that, he's a malevolent God. He's not a, he's not a righteous and holy and pure and perfect God. Now, I will tell you this, how do we know that God's not like that? I mean, the, the world could say, well, God, a divine mind, could create anything he wants, and then he could be malevolent. Maybe he sets this whole scenario up just to pretend, pull the wool over your eyes, to, to discourage you, to make you miserable, and then you die, and then you just go, to, go back to, from dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Maybe that's, maybe that's, I mean, God could be that. But I think we can look in creation, as Paul says in Romans, we can look at creation and see it's right, Genesis 2, and everything that was created was good. I was in Montana this week with some of our CRD families I just alluded to, and the last day, I couldn't see that. They kept saying, we're in the mountains. I said, I can't see mountains. There's too much smoke to see mountains. But finally, right before I got on the, uh, on the plane, they said, we're going to take you up, and we went up into the big sky area and the Yellowstone area. Let me tell you something. The creation is good. And you can see from the creation that God is not a malevolent God. So God is good. If you, if you think of anything other than that about God, that God wouldn't be good or that he is malevolent or whatever, or maybe that he's just the grandfather in the sky, that everything's just peachy and everything and he doesn't care about sin or maybe he cares about it, but everybody's forgiven and it's one big world and the spirit's within you and the divine is within you and all you got to do is kind of somehow pull it out. And if that's the God that you've created, let me tell you something, that is the God that you have created. That is not the God of the Bible. And I think I know, what I hope you understand is you may say, well, that would be a nice God, and I guess we've got to deal with it. God's God, and we've got to deal with the mean, vengeful, wrathful God, and we can just deal with it. No, you can understand, hopefully by now, after two weeks, you can understand, no, God out of necessity is wrathful because he cares for his creation so much. He cannot see you abused. The problem is he's looking at you, and he also recognizes that you also are an abuser. Is there anybody in here who's not both the abused and the abuser? For all have sinned, all have abused and fall short of the glory of God. That's my predicament. I, I've, I've been abused at various points, but I am also an abuser. So I want God to have wrath. 
God, pour out your wrath on everybody but me. You know, that sometimes rises in our hearts. You know, this is actually exactly where Habakkuk found himself. Now, I know many of you have probably spent your last two or three weeks doing your devotionals within Habakkuk. Such a, it's a major, encouraging, you know, prophet, one of the minor prophets. But let me tell you something. Habakkuk gets this. He gets this weird position that we find ourselves in with dealing with the wrath of God. So if you have your Bibles, go to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. This is what he saw. Now, Habakkuk is a beautiful minor prophet because one of the quintessential cornerstones of our faith are found in Habakkuk hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. He says the righteous man will live by his faith. And Paul picks up this refrain in the New Testament over and over and says, see, it's always been by faith. You're saved by grace through faith and not of works, as he writes to the Ephesians. It's all about faith. And then some of his Pharisee counterparts, because he was a Pharisee, would say, you don't know what you're talking about. It's all about the law. And he says, no. And then he hearkens back to Habakkuk. But before that, this is how Habakkuk begins. Listen to his complaint. And see, we find ourselves. We don't want, we want a fairy tale kind of, you know, grandfatherly Santa Claus type of God, except when we've been abused. Listen to what he says. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. Do you ever feel like that? And the wicked surround the righteous, and therefore justice comes out perverted. See, he's saying, look, this is such a ripoff. People are getting away with everything, God. What's going on here? And then he says this, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder. And then God's speaking here through the prophet. This is what God's response is. Because I am doing something in your days, you wouldn't believe it even if you were told. Now, what is the context here? The context is, Habakkuk, I realize you see injustice, but I'm about to do something and you wouldn't believe it even if I poured it all and laid it all out before. You couldn't imagine that this was ever going to happen to your nation. But not just your nation, all over the, all over the world. You've got to realize at this point, Israel's about to become a vassal state under the Babylonians. But there was also, Egypt was going to be annihilated virtually overnight. And they were going to be dispossessed of their great world power position. And then Assyria, the capital of the Ninevites, they were going to be utterly desolated. And then Babylon, of all people, those people, and we'll see in a minute, where justice arises in them, from themselves. In other words, their idea of justice is not me. Their idea of justice arises within their own minds. These are a fierce in brutal people, and they're going to rise, and they're going to bring forth justice. Against who? Against your own people, Habakkuk. Means You ever think about that? God, I want justice. You've heard me preach maybe before. I used to say that. God, I want justice. This is a ripoff. And then I started thinking about it. I started reading the Bible, and I started recognizing my own sin, and I'm like, I don't want justice. I want mercy. I need mercy. I don't want your justice. 
Next verse says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Now, he's going to describe the very people that he's going to use to bring forth his indignation for the sins of a people that were called to be his own family and mediate the covenants to the nations. Isaiah had seen it. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, many other places. You're going to be a light to the nations, a light to the nations. You have a high calling. There is a high necessity for you to be a righteous and holy people who live under blessing and not under curse. But you failed it. So I'm raising up a people. Their justice and their authority originate from themselves, with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. That's these Chaldeans. That would be the Babylonians. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will, be, they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. This is what I referred to a couple of weeks ago as judgment in time or wrath in time. Now, we're going to look at uh, Revelation 6 just briefly this morning, and that's a picture of when God sets everything ultimately right, not a momentary right, not a, not a momentary pouring out his indignation in places where there needs to be justice or his plans are being thwarted and he needs to reroute. No, 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 an ultimate setting all things right. But this is judgment in time, and he's using a brutal people to carry out his own wrath. You've appointed them to judge, O rock. You've established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. See, this is what we were, this is where we finished Isaiah last week. We, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was like, I just, I'm a man of unclean lips, Lord. You're God. You, I, I didn't even, I didn't, re, basically what Isaiah said, I didn't realize who I was dealing with. And now I've come into your, before your throne, whether it was, in his body or out or a vision or whatever, Isaiah is just, his immediate response is the most righteous guy, and this is where we finished last week, was just, woe is me, I am undone, I am ruined. I recognize now who I'm dealing with. And I think that's what's happening to Habakkuk. He starts out this refrain, you know, God, where are you? There's no justice, there's no justice, there's no justice. You're, you're absolutely right. As David had seen in Psalm 51, you're You're righteous and you're just and you're blameless when you judge, when you bring your, when you bring your ruling, you're, you're blameless in this because you're God and we're not. And that's, I think, where he came from. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. God, okay, I understand why there's no apparent justice. Maybe there's not justice immediately because you're so gracious that you've been given us an opportunity to turn back to you. Maybe you're here this morning or on live stream and you just... Somehow you just picked it up. Maybe you're on YouTube and you just, you just happened to come across this. And you know, you were just flipping through something and you came across this and you recognize all of a sudden that it's me who's the problem. And 
and I deserve justice, and I de- but is there a way for mercy? And so you can see God's holiness that just begins to explode on the pages, and Habakkuk recognizes that. I want to go to one other place before we go to the New Testament. And look, there are many places that we could have unpacked just as a function of time. We're going to just look at a few. We looked at Isaiah 6, God's holiness. Again, Habakkuk, you're just too, you're too pure to approve of evil. You just can't look on it. And now we get this kind of nuanced story in the book of Numbers. Numbers, first chapter of Numbers. So you have the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the fourth book of your Bible, first chapter. Moses is the author, and listen to what is said. God speaking through Moses. Let's start here in verse 50. But you shall appoint the Levites, okay? The Levites were the Levitical tribe. They were the priestly tribe of the 12. And when they went out into the wilderness, they camped as they were marching through the wilderness. And the Levites were at the center. Now, what's really fascinating about it, and I've actually done this in my Bible, is that I... You can calculate the number of tribes, how they were supposed to set up their tribal. uh, uh, They had a very specific way. And the Ark of the Covenant was in the middle of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. And the tabernacle was in the center. And then they had a few tribes on the north, a few tribes on this side, and a few tribes on this side, and then a lot of tribes on this side. What does that look like? A few tribes over here, a few tribes over here, a few tribes over here, and then a long bunch of tribes over here in terms of number. It formed a perfect cross. And God said, no, you need to do it exactly like this. Why? Because in La Quinta and Palm Desert, California, thousands of years from now, they're going to be talking about this. And they're going to be amazed that you were talking about the cross again, here we have it again, 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. Way before the Romans had ever come up with this horror, torturous way to kill people, the, Jesus was, God was already seeing the cross. And he says, so when you camp, you need to camp like this. And then this is what he says. You will appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. And they're going to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and they shall camp around the tabernacle. So you've got these tribes that are camping, a few here, a few here, and a long number here. They're camping around, but the Levites are camping in the, immediately, the immediate proximity to the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. If you're part of the tribal, non-Levitical tribe, and you come near the tabernacle, you're dead. Not too different from what we saw with the... David, remember in May 20th when we talked about the moving of the tabernacle back into Jerusalem and and one of us, you know, reaches out and tries to grab it and he's immediately struck down. This is, this is God saying something here. This is not just weird stories. God's communicating something to us today. And listen to what he goes on to say. The sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, each man by his own standard according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there will be no what? Wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, why would I put this in here? Well, God is speaking through this setup, this camp setup. He's speaking to us 3,500 years later. And it's loud and clear. 
There is no way to get to the presence of God except through what? The exact right process. And the priests were the ones that were to hold on to that truth. They were the ones to give you instruction. And ultimately, it was only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement who could go into the Holy of Holies. They were to protect that that way. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the way. I don't know the way. I am the way. And what God is saying here is that if you want to get to the very presence of God, there is only one way. But see, now it's not just for priests. Well, I'm not a priest or a pastor or something like that. No, no, no. We are the royal priesthood. Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2 and says, you're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You can go right out into your community right here in the valley. And you can talk to people about the way. Because if they're, try- they're trying to enter all these other kinds of ways. Well, I'm a divine person within, and I've been listening to Oprah, and she has the secret, you know, in the book. And then, and then Deepak Chopra says this, and then this guy says that. And then Stephen Hawking, from a scientific perspective, he said they're not even a god. And, then, you know, you have all these, this, 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 this rush of philosophies and ideas about the divine or about the lack of the divine and all these. And you as a whole, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you as a holy priest, you're called as a priest. You have a gift. I, I think about this morning, I saw Judy Blue, and, and I saw her, just her simple invitation. I said, Judy, I said, Judy you're, an, you're an evangelist. She goes, I, I think I am an evangelist, you know. You went out and you just shared Jesus with Sharon as our as a precious Jewish woman. And then, and then Sharon got back. A year she came in here and then she... She said, okay, Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah, and she got baptized a couple weeks ago like we shared with you. But see, Judy had to protect. She's part of that priestly tribe. And she had to tell Sharon there's only one way. And don't come too near to this. And so what God was saying is there is, there is only one way. Otherwise, it's wrath. And I, just, I think that's beautiful. Again, and if you have a Jewish friend or a Jewish family or somebody that you know, and maybe you've, they've been open a little bit to you talking about Jesus or whatever. You can go right to their book, right to the Torah, right to the Pentateuch and see, see, it, ha- it has to be a very specific way to get to God. It's not just everybody or good works or any of that nonsense. It's all about one thing. It's, it's through Jesus. And you've got to protect that way. Why? Otherwise, it's wrath. It's Jesus or wrath. Let me be clear before we finish this series. The Bible could not be more clear. It's Jesus or it's wrath. We can turn to the New Testament. Jesus' own words, John 3, verse 36. Listen to what he says. It's important. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, you can discount Jesus, but don't buy into a little bit of Jesus. Don't say, I like when Jesus said this, but I don't like when Jesus said that. I mean, if you're going to eat this thing, eat the whole thing. That's part of Church at the Red Door, Exodus chapter 12. Bring the lamb, which was a prefiguring of Jesus, into your house and eat the whole thing. you got to eat everything Jesus said. And that includes a verse like this. Well, you know, I have friends and, you know, they're good people. They're nice and they're nicer than my my Christian friends, you know. I mean, they're really nice. They're hospitable and they're wonderful, but they don't believe in Jesus. And there's such an allure. And it, 
in my own people-pleasing way, it used to be, yeah, I understand. Well, maybe they are good people. Maybe deep down they love God. And No, I finally just said, look, I'm either going to follow Jesus and eat the whole thing or I'm going to reject the whole thing and I'm going to go back and create some God out of my own. Just create a God that I like. I like a God like this and like that. And, you know, we can get a car like we want it. I like the interior color to look like this. And I want, you know, power this. And I want that. And I want serious radio. And, I, and that's what I like. And we're used to that. And then we come to Jesus and we say, I want my Jesus to be like this. And I want my God to be like that. We can't do that. All that is is a non-God. It's an idol. It's a fictitious entity. It doesn't exist. God exists. So you can imagine this, the wrath of God abides on those who do not believe in the Son. Now you may be offended by that. Maybe you're a visitor here this morning. You've never heard that. Well, that makes me mad that you would say that. This says that. This is the total word of God. Well, what, what is wrath? Well, it's, it's a curse. In other words, you say, well, how would you define a curse? Well, if you said it today, it's like, well, you know. A curse is witchcraft. We associate a curse with like witchcraft or some kind of, you know, I, I mentioned it last week, poking pins into a doll or some kind of hocus pocus or some kind of fairy tale kind of curse that you put on somebody. From a biblical perspective, how would you define a curse? Well, R.C. Sproul, I think, and I never thought of it like this, but R.C. Sproul does a beautiful job in saying, well, what's the opposite of a curse? would be a blessing, a blessing. So if you want to know what a curse is, it's the exact opposite of a blessing. Well, what's a blessing? Well, I think we could look, maybe, we'll, maybe the ironic blessing, Numbers chapter 6, for instance, you know. A lot of times many of you maybe been dismissed that way. Go, turn in your Bible, if you will, Genesis. You're already there in Numbers, if you're still there. Numbers chapter 6. Let me just read this for you real quick. This would be what a blessing is. Aaron's benediction. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 22. Number 6, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, and he said, Speak to Aaron, who's the priest, Levitical priest, and to his sons, and say, You shall bless the sons of Israel, and say to them, Now many of you have heard this, and depending on your background, you may have been uh, released from church each week with the ironic blessing. Maybe the, the pastor or someone put their hand up, and then they said, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Hey, anybody ever experienced that? In fact, I'd like to do that more often. In fact, Paul, hold, me, hold my feet to the fire here. You know, Pastor Randy, hold my feet. Let's, let's occasionally, we don't have to do it every week, but let's occasionally just bless the church at the red door and those watching on live stream. May the Lord bless you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance on you. Well, that's blessing. Well, where does blessing come from? Blessing comes from under the Mosaic Covenant, under the law. Well, if you follow all these 612 laws faithfully, then you're going to be the head and not the tail. Number, uh, Deuteronomy 28, you're going to be the head and not the tail. And your bowls are going to be full and your, and, your, and your wine vats and your olives and everything are going to just explode on the vine and, the, and they're going to overflow. It's going to, it's going to be great. Your grain and your wine and your oil are just going to be, they're going to proliferate. It's going to be wonderful. But if you don't hold to this law, and the blessings are about that long, and the curses are about that long, 
It's not going to be good for you. Boils, brutal fever, struggle with family, commerce, everything's going down. You're going to be the tail and not the head. You're going to be enslaved. People are going to come in and take your own children right before your eyes. And then you're not going to be able to do a thing about it. That's the curse. That, that's not just some old slavery motif. Some of you may have felt, you know, I feel like that now. It's like somebody enslaved my own kids. And they've been drugged down a path, philosophical path, and they've rejected God. Maybe you've got grandkids or kids or somebody you know well. And it feels like there's nothing I can do about it. It's like this, this people group. They got around the wrong crowd and they just took them away. And now they're far from God and they're experiencing in some ways... God's wrath of sorts. Well, let's flip the ironic blessing. You want to know what a curse is? You want to know what a curse is? Let me, let me just read it slightly differently. If, if the ironic blessing, that's a blessing, what would the ironic curse be? And it doesn't exist in your Bible. Let, let's read what a curse would look like. You know what it's like to be under the wrath of God? Let me read. The Lord curse you and ignore you. The Lord turn away from you. And judge and condemn you. The Lord scowl at you in anger. And forever give you turmoil. And worry. Not peace. You know what a curse is? If it's the opposite of a blessing, that's what it may look like. Now you want, Now this is going to get good. Are you ready for this? Man, this is good. Are you out there going, oh gosh, I haven't lived up under the law. I mean, I... I feel so many times, is, is this my destiny? Is this my destiny? Am I under a curse? Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Let's start about verse 10. Let's go back to verse 10. Galatians 3. I just want to start a little bit earlier than I had on the... Galatians 3. Let me tell you something. This, this, I want this to grip you. For as many, Galatians 3 verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Everything? All 612? Wow. I can't even, I only, let's say, maybe I can do one. I never killed anybody and then Jesus comes along, have you ever called your brother a fool? Well, you're guilty of murder. Oh, man, I was thinking maybe I could at least maybe pass the test on one of them. No, if you're guilty in even one part, you're cursed. That's what the law said. That's Deuteronomy 28, 27, actually, and then on into 28. 11, now verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. In other words, justification is a legal term. You're not justified. The, the court deems you guilty. The righteous man shall live by faith. Now he quotes the prophet Habakkuk. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Now catch this. If it just left us there, we're in bad shape. I'm in bad shape. But then verse 13. Are you ready for this? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now I don't want this to escape you. If you don't get anything this morning, get this. Having become a curse... For us, 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 verse 22 says that. If, you, if a man hangs on a, on a tree, that man is cursed. Now, do you think that's just by chance that God put that in the Levitical law? 1,500 years before the time of his own son would go and hang on a tree? Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's like, this is exploding his mind under the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is going, I can't even believe it. It's always been here. The Messiah had to hang on a tree. He had to become our curse. Not that he was just cursed. He became a curse for me. In order that, in Christ, why did he do that? So the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What was the promise? The promise was the Holy Spirit, God's presence with us. So here's the deal. Now, it's all, all unpacked here. God's wrath, nobody can stand under my wrath. Nobody's good. So I can't be my holiness and my grace and my wonder cannot be, they're inseparable from my justice and then necessarily my wrath. Because those are inseparable, I come together and now is God double-minded? Not at all. The plan was even before the beginning. That's why when Revelation says Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth were even laid, it was always the plan. Not for man to appease God. Man is not in a position to appease God, right? Where we can go out and sacrifice something and then, you know, that's, let me just tell you, that's a barbaric notion. It's, it's, there's a crudeness to that. That's what other religions have done. Somehow appease the mighty gods out there. If I can just appease the gods, then the, maybe the gods, and some people see the cross as that. It's as if God was coming in and then Jesus was trying to appease God for us. No, 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 no. Let me tell you something. God went to the cross. God didn't just throw it out. The substitute was God himself through his, through his own son. The plan was always to appease his nature, but there was no other person found that could appease him. And you see that even in the book of Isaiah. I believe it's Isaiah 59, verse 16. You know, who, who, where? Where's the one? He looked for someone to intercede, but there was nobody. So he did the interceding. That was always the plan. God says, I got to curse them. It's my nature. It's who I am. They would implode. They would explode if we came into close proximity. Don't let them come near the congregation. Levitical priests, you keep them out or my wrath will fall on them. Tell them. Don't let them come near the mountain. They'll explode. No man can see the face of God and live. It just You can't do it. What am I going to do? I'm in a catch-20. God was never in a catch-22. The plan was always, I'll create them, give them some free will. They'll fail, and I'll come down, and I will die on their behalf. And his son became a curse. You've got to let the weightiness of that go into your soul. It's too easy now, especially if you grew up in the church. Well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and now, you know, I go to heaven. And it kind of, you, know, you lose the weightiness of that. So when we go back to the ironic blessing, what went on to Jesus was this. And the Lord curse you and ignore you. The Lord turned away from you. God the Father turned his head at the cross. He can't look upon sin. 2 Corinthians 5, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, 
to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3, he became a curse. Do you get the gravity of that? Your life was put on him. I heard John Corson, a great teacher, one of the Calvary teachers years ago, he called it the great switcheroo. He's on the cross. God's got a, Jesus has a perfect, righteous, unblemished life. Never one failure. And here we are, the penitent thieves. I'll speak for myself. And God says, here's what I'll do. I'll take the wrath that I, it is due you, and I'll switch it, and I'll put it on my son. And then I'll take my son, his righteousness, and put it on you. Get that? Do you understand the gravity of that statement? God is not a cosmic slot machine here to answer every prayer at your whim. I mean, He loves you, He has a plan for you, but He's very concerned about your transformation. He died for you. You're justified in the moment you believe, but He'll spend the, re- you'll spend the rest of your life being regenerated, transformed, sanctified, becoming like Jesus if you stay on the path. Don't get off the path, don't reject the Savior. And this, I think, will help you understand. Now, we could go into Revelation 6. If, you, if you're taking notes, just go back and you can read it. It's about the ultimate wrath of God being poured out. It's pretty cataclysmic, you know, mountains are being fallen. Is this literal or not? I, I don't know how literally we can read it, but maybe it is very literal. Uh, we never read the Bible always literally. We read it literarily. Was it intended to be this or, you know, so we see things as metaphor, simile, different ways to read it. And then there are some disputes. But either way, you look, God pours out his wrath. God sets everything right in in Revelation chapter 6. But as a function of time, I want to say, by the way, wrath is never for us. And I want to express why that is. Why, Why not us now take the place? See, part of the history of the church, if you know anything about church history... One of the great failures and and one of the reasons many people say, I would never come to Christ. In fact, many Jewish people will not even explore the topic of Jesus as being the long-awaited Jewish Messiah because of the ostensibly the church that turned around and in various places persecuted the Jewish people. Thinking that it was the church's responsibility to pour out God's wrath. Listen to this, Romans 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Why? Because God sees the whole picture as it really is. I'm driven by vainglory. I'm driven by self-motivation, self-preservation, everything. At best, my vision is skewed. And that's why it's so hard in the context of a church. There are times when something is so manifestly evil that a church leadership will have to come in and make a judgment. Move, remove somebody from the congregation because they're living such hypocrisy that they're actually a detriment to the church. I take that with fear and trembling. And by the way, that's not my wrath. I'm not preaching wrath. I'm preaching God one day that wrath exists on the earth. But here's the beautiful blessing of the gospel. I got some great news for you. Most people laugh and they mock the idea of wrath. Ephesians 4 verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Um, Along with all malice. Don't do it. Why? Because you can't see things as they are. 
you may feel 100% self-justified. You're the victim. Everybody else is wrong, right? That guy messed around with me, and I did nothing to deserve it, and you pour out your wrath. Don't do it. God says, let me do it. Now, that's an act of faith, by the way. And then Jesus comes along, pray for those who persecute you. You got somebody persecuting you? Don't pour out the wrath thinking you're pouring out the wrath of God. I'm telling you not to pour out my wrath. Vengeance is mine. Why? Because I'm blameless. I'm spotless and I see all the details. You don't know what's going on in that person's life. You can't possibly have walked in their shoes. And you're going to be the almighty? You're going to come in and pour out your wrath? Don't do it. Pray for those who persecute you. That's, boy, that'll preach. That's good preaching there. I tell you what, uh, everybody will love that sermon. You know, they'll just come clamoring to our doors for that sermon. So let's close with this. Back to David. Back to King David. Wrath in time came. Judgment in time came. But not eternal wrath on David, no. We'll see David in heaven. But the consequences were profound, Were they not? Have we not seen that? I mean, think about it. The death of his child by Bathsheba, this horrible thing that happened in the middle of the night. His main guy, Uriah, out on the field. He should have been out fighting with Uriah, and no, and he looked down on his wife, and he took that one little, just that one little, according to VeggieTales, rubber ducky. He had all the rubber duckies, and that guy only had one little rubber ducky, and he says, I need that little rubber ducky too. If you kids, if you've got kids or grandkids, you ever watch VeggieTales, I'll, I'll interpret that later for you because I, some of you I was just speaking in tongues there and I don't even, you know. So, so, and there was a rape of one of his own daughters. We looked at that. Can you imagine Tamar? Death of his son Amnon as a result of that. Killed by one of his other sons. That's pretty brutal, Absalom. Conspiracy by Absalom. Eventual death of Absalom as well. Death and violence among his officers, power plays, and death of Adonijah finally, even after he's gone. I mean, it's just, it's just brutal what the consequences. God still loves David. The Bible still says David was a man after God's own heart. Now, I will tell you this. What I want to do now is we have a personal story. Now, for those of you who don't know, the original vision for Church at the Red Door was we were going to do MTR, music, teaching. Not music is worship, but music, teaching, testimony. We call it, excuse me, MTT, not MTR. MTT, music, teaching, testimony. The vision long-term that, I, that God had given me uh, a number of years back was that each week, somehow, if we could, we would get to a place where you, the church at the red door, should you so desire, can get into a place where you can get into a little studio, and we've been working on this, and we've got more work to do, but, and create a little two, three-minute video, and you can get in where I'll ask you some questions, and you might be in there for 30 minutes, and then produce something that will be kind of like your wedding photo. Right? It'll be nice. You say, well, I could never get up in front of a public, you know, group, and some pe- people feel uncomfortable with that, but your story needs to be told, because your story matters, and your story is just as phenomenal as mine, as, as anybody else's. And so you, we want to see what God's doing in the life of our people where he takes his wrath that should have been poured out and instead of wrath, people receive grace. That's all our testimony really is, isn't it? 
So today we're going to start. He gets to be the landmark first guy. And Randy and his team and Pete and all the guys and Derek and all the guys who've been in the studio producing this stuff did say, we want Robert Ratliff. So if you don't know Robert, by the way, today's Robert's birthday. Isn't that cool? So Robert, I'm so proud of Robert. Now, many of you, uh, we got a lot of Coachella Valley Rescue Mission folks uh, with us, and we love you being part of our body, by the way. Can I just tell you that? We love you being here. We love you being here. Uh, but Robert really does have a testimony, and Robert went all the way, less than 5% people get all the way through the New Life program at Coachella Valley Rescue Mission. Most people bail because it's tough. It is tough. Robert made it all the way through. Robert's continuing. I've watched him now for a year and a half. He's continued to follow Jesus, but here's his story. So why don't we see? In 1971, I was born in Sacramento, California. When my mother was pregnant with me, I was, uh, she went to prison for seven years. She shot my dad in the head, one of my stepfathers, for molesting my sister. 1993, I started um, taking items from department stores after $5,000 later that was uh, confiscated by police, um, I went to county jail. And after I got out of the county jail, I spiraled downhill. I just, I didn't care anymore. I started robbing drug dealers. I started, like, I was taking their money, you know what I mean? Not caring. On the top bunk in, uh, in my prison cell, um, I prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And right then and there, that's when I made an oath. And I told him, uh, if you can get me out of this, I'll go to Coachella Valley Rescue Mission, and um, I will go back to that place and graduate the program, and uh, I will serve you, and I will not look back. I will be a good man, a good father, you know what I mean, a good Christian, and I will obey your laws, your rules, and your commandments, and I won't look back. My mom's dead. My dad's dead. Almost all my aunts and uncles are dead. can't reach my son. I heard all over, bro. I heard all over. And you know, I pray about it every day, but sometimes it becomes unbearable. Life is a lot of uncertainties, but I know that Jesus got my back. There's a lot of things that I've been holding on to for a long time, a lot of strongholds that I've had in my life. And you know what? Church of the Red Doors helped me, uh, my church family has helped me like get rid of a lot of that through prayer and the power of Jesus Christ and uh, placing stuff on the altar. You know, that's important. You gotta put it on the altar. Cause if you don't, you're gonna carry it and it's heavy. I love you Church of the Red Door. Come on over here, Robert. I think we should, I don't know, I think we should sing happy birthday to Robert, don't you? Huh? How old are you, brother? Whisper it in my ear. 47. <laughs> 47. I love this guy. We, uh, Laura and I have had the privilege, we've had him over for Thanksgiving time or two and had him over for Christmas. And um, here's something else. Uh, but you know what? God's something else in you, isn't he? That's isn't right. that the beauty of it? So uh, we're going to sing happy birthday, and I'm going to see if you wouldn't mind closing this in prayer. Would you mind doing that? And then, uh, okay, okay. You ready? 
Stacy, come on now. Stacy, <laughs> Stacy, stand up and lead us in happy birthday. Okay, you can do that. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear ranch. <laughs> to you. His name? That's right. He, he, you know, Robert's here early, so Eliza, some of our other brothers here too as well, and sisters who from the, and they come up, they set up, they serve us, they're, they're doing some amazing things. And I'm so proud, I call him the ranch because his name's Robert Ratliff, RR, the double R ranch, so I just said, you're the ranch now, so I call him the ranch. So the ranch, I'm asking you to close us in prayer and uh, just ha- lead us out today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord. Um, I so graciously thank you for coming into my life, Lord, and um, just saving me from all the turmoil, Lord, and all the distress that I used to have, Lord, two years ago. Lord, I, um, I thank you for my entire church family, Lord, the snowbirds and the people watching around the world, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you fix whatever problems that they may be, may be, may be going through, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that, yes, Lord. Uh, that you just work in their lives, Lord, and if they don't know you, Jesus, I pray there that, um, that, you know, you just overpower them with the Holy Spirit, Lord, and help them, Lord, to overcome whatever obstacle that may be in their way to keep them from serving you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, I'll tell you this before you leave. I think, he, I think we as a church someday, is my own prophetic thing, it may, it's my own, I think he's going to go to Bible college, and I think we'll send him there as a church, and I think he'll be preaching one day. Love you, buddy. All right. Well, hey, Pete, why don't you start that uh, last song? And, and as, as folk, we can play it as folks are leaving. Uh, this is a beautiful song. And uh, hey, we love you. Are you okay after a three-part wrath of God? Do you do you love do you love Jesus more? See, if, if when you understand the full truth of God's wrath, and then He poured it out on Jesus, how can you not fall in love with Jesus? How can you live in your sin when you know what he did for you? How can you do that? How can you not be serious? How can you not spend time in prayer, talking to him and in the word, and being part of a community that loves him? It should be the highlight of your week, being with other people who love the same person you do. We love you at Church of the Red Door. Have a great week.